Would it surprise you to learn that attending a Cincinnati Bengals game provides the NFL's best value for a family of four? It would still cost you more than a PlayStation 5. In other news, 3CDC has big plans for the former Saks Fifth Avenue building downtown. But first, it wants the city to sell it the building for $1. This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, the podcast from the Cincinnati Business Courier. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by co-host Tom Narmopoulos. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Hi, Andy. Good to be here. So I had for lunch today something that, at least in our newsroom and my household, has proved very controversial. You know what I had? I do. Dayton-style pizza. Now, you lived in Dayton for a couple of years, reporting for our sister paper there. What's your opinion on Marion's? So I've got to come clean. I did not live in Dayton during my time, my two and a half years reporting there. I commuted from the west side because as a west sider, I'm never allowed to leave. (laughs) Dayton-style pizza is good. Pizza's pizza, so all pizza's good. It's not my favorite style. It's a little salty for me. Sometimes I've likened it to pizza sauce on a saltine cracker. You know, whenever I, my wife, God bless her, she's one who, she she works up in Mason, and she brought me back a pizza last night, so thank you for that, but whenever I I, I profess a longing for this pizza, she says, you know, you could just throw some sauce on a saltine. (laughs) She's not wrong. (laughs) Sorry, Marion's. (laughs) So downtown Cincinnati, heck, a lot of downtowns, used to be the center of retail activity. I remember when I was much younger, took a trip to Chicago, and I remember being supremely bored while my family shopped on the Magnificent Mile, though I did end up going into a music store and buying a Pixie CD that I listened to non-top, nonstop for the next 18 months. Downtown Cincinnati used to be a hub for luxury retail. I mean, you had Tiffany & Company right across the street from Saks Fifth Avenue, and even newcomers like Hellman's Clothiers. Now, the Kenwood Town Center has usurped that position, luring Tiffany and adding shops like Louis Vuitton. But there are big plans for that empty Saks building downtown. There are, you know, you know, we've talked about on the podcast before, Andy, that uh, retail in particular was thought of kind of going to be the savior of downtown uh, previously. And there was plans to bring Nordstrom down there as well, which ended up at Kenwood Town Center. But now we're really kind of uh, seeing the next you know the next iteration of what those buildings could be and what downtowns could be yeah you know uh, speaking of downtown used to be looking out from our perch here in the 34th floor of the the Scripps Center there are office buildings as far as the eye can see and a lot of this used to be retail as well I mean we used to work in the the Shilato's building and a lot of that's been converted for other uses I mean you've got uh, the the PNC building, I know that's uh, its colloquial name, just uh, topped out as a new apartment center, part of a city within a city, and even our former office space in the Mercantile is being converted into residences as well. So 3CDC, they are surprisingly not planning that for the Saks building. Yeah, uh, going a different route here, 3CDC is looking to add more office space to downtown, uh, which might seem counterintuitive. But if you look at what has happened since they redeveloped the foundry, the the office space there, 150,000 square feet, is full. Because uh, what did they do? They made office space that's different, that's cool, and that's highly amenitized. Yes, the the building itself is 75,000 square feet, and most of that will be turned into office, about 66,000 square feet, with, you know, another 8,600 square feet of commercial space on the ground floor. And they had some interesting projections, 3CDC. 
they said that the building would house 210 permanent full-time jobs representing about $16.8 million in annual payroll, which averages out to about $80,000 a job, which which sounds awfully specific. <laughs> it does. But, you know, those would, be, those would be great jobs to add to the urban core. Yeah, so 3CDC, they are asking the city to sell at the building for $1. And the city of Cincinnati paid $3 million for the building. The city held a public hearing on August 9th, and some questions came out of that, as in... Uh, you know, why no RFP? Why not put out a request for proposals for what to do with that building? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, th- I think the answer to that, Andy, would be that uh, this is going to be a very difficult project and probably one that many developers wouldn't do without a tenant in hand uh, because I, I just don't see many other groups having the ability or, or the desire to build spec office space right now. But I think 3CDC is one of those groups that's willing to take that risk. And as a nonprofit developer, I mean, it can kind of take on some of that without having to immediately have a tenant in hand where it can and recoup some of that nut. So it's a tricky building, too. The Hyatt Regency Hotel, its ballroom sits on top of that. So they can't really, you know, go vertical and build above the existing sacks. But, you know, like you said with the foundry, I mean, 3CDC has had success in this model of repurposing old, especially retail space. I mean, the foundry was, was formerly devoted mostly to Macy's. And now that's got high-profile tenants like... Uh, Divisions Maintenance Group, like Turner Construction. Deloitte. Deloitte. Yeah, these are be Steakhouse. These are good tenants. These are uh, companies that want to be in downtown, that want you know the action and the excitement that comes with being in the urban core. Yeah, and in the case of some, well, in the case of Divisions, we were able to lure them from across the river. So that's another, I mean, those jobs are staying within the region, but it's a net win for the city of Cincinnati. So Cincinnati Children's has been on a streak as of late, from acquisitions to more than $127 million in new construction projects announced in recent months. It can't all be sunshine, though. Our Liz Angle broke the story that a $100 million specialized manufacturing facility and joint venture with CTI Clinical Trial and Consulting Services has officially been killed. Yeah, Andy, this is uh, one of those stories where it's it's a bit of a bummer for the region. When this was announced back in 2021, I remember I was uh, still on the real estate beat, and uh, my my big thing was, where are they going to put this? Where are they going to build this uh, this facility? Well, Chris Wetterick had a story too on a project that had long been. I don't want to say assumed, but thought could be a potential home for this. The Queen City Hills project is being spearheaded by. Eddie Rigaud, the son of former P&G executive turned entrepreneur Ed Rigaud. Now, Eddie had been developing the 5.85-acre Queen City Hills project, and that was going to include residential and commercial development as well as research labs. And it had been thought that this $100 million project, this, this venture between Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Covington CTI, would potentially be housed there. But Rigaud told Chris that, uh, you know, it's not going to be starting at least this year. The development overall, the Queen City Hills project, right? right. Yeah. And now with uh, the news that Liz has that uh, this project isn't moving forward, the uh, current biologics project uh, 
it just would have made sense that it would go near Children's Campus. I think you would assume that it, there would be some synergy with being close to Cincinnati Children's Hospital and also being part of the Innovation District. If you're looking to attract, you know, new, growing, talented companies, that would be the place that you'd probably want to place them. Yeah, but, you know, Rigo, he said that he still believes that the region's medical and research institutions could utilize a development like Queen City Hills. And so it's not by any means dead. It's just, and it kind of makes sense with the timing of these two announcements that it's just not going to be happening this year. Tom, Mivy wants to be the lead of DEI. Now, I'm sure what I just said sounds like a bunch of word salad. Don't you just love business jargon? Uh, it's my favorite. I love I love it. I love figuring out what it means and then helping our readers also understand what it means. And that's why you're a journalist. So you're familiar with lead, right? I mean, it's... I am, yeah. So covering commercial real estate for as long as I did, LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, which is kind of the uh, the go-to for determining if a building is actually energy efficient or not, if it's, you know, a green building. Right. So it's, it's a national standard. If you go from Albany to Albuquerque, you'll know that a LEED-certified building is going to have some degree of energy efficiency, be it LEED-certified silver, gold, or platinum. That's a, a useful tool and a shorthand for the industry to have when it comes to things like awarding incentives for a project or recognizing you know, excellence, and especially with such a, a priority placed on lowering companies' carbon footprints and a lot of organizations going for net zero emissions, LEED is something that's really easy to point to. This is a LEED-certified platinum building you know it's super energy efficient. Yes, because they are diligent about checking all the boxes on what you say you're doing in those buildings. And uh, when they grade them, it, it's it's not easy. And it's a, it is a uh, lengthy and uh, intense process to get that certification. Now, there's really no such national standard for diversity or social impact, though. In early 2020, there was a lot of social upheaval, especially after the slayings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, two unarmed black people killed by police. There seemed to be a groundswell of companies adding new DEI roles from chief diversity officers or inclusion officers. But in the years since, it doesn't really seem like a ton has come from those positions. In fact, the the Wall Street Journal reported recently that thousands of people in similar roles had been laid off. The problem, at least as a new Cincinnati nonprofit sees it, is that there's no national standard, no way for these companies to measure their DEI and social impact efforts until now. Yeah, Andy, this is uh, this is really exciting that a group here in, you know, as we like to say sometimes, little old Cincinnati has seen this problem and wanted to come up with a solution. And, you know, Cincinnati has a history of, of doing this. Uh, this is not, this would not be, you know, out of, out of the realm of possibility for this organization to become the national model for, for measuring this and for seeing, you know, helping companies get to the level of improvement. Uh, you look back to what happened after the riots in 2001 and, and what we did with police reform, that has become kind of the national model for improving community police uh, relations. Absolutely. And so this this new nonprofit was founded by Tom Fernandez, the CEO of Elevar Design Group, and Eric Kearney, the CEO of Cincinnati in Northern Kentucky's African-American Chamber of Commerce, and a former state lawmaker. 
So the way Tom Fernandez explains it, as the CEO of Alvar, he'd been, he actually had an employee whose entire job it was full-time was to maintain the architecture firm's certification of, for being a, a certified minority-owned firm, an, an MBE, a minority business enterprise. But he said that it wasn't really paying off. I mean, those, those, the MBE definition varies between governmental organizations, between nonprofits that award, between individual companies that award business to these MBEs. And he said that it's impacted his business maybe 1%, and even that's a stretch, to the point where he's not even really pursuing those designations anymore. Yet him and, he and Kearney, they banded together to create MIVI, uh, you know, Another word salad acronym, which stands for Marginalized Impact Value Indicator for Equity. And it, it really hopes to kind of be the lead certification for companies' social impact efforts. Yeah, this is a, it's a big goal. This is a lofty goal for MIVI. Um, but I, I think, you know, what they're trying to do makes sense. And it makes sense to try to start doing this now because... You know, as you said, there was this this huge buildup of of interest and effort was put behind, uh, you know, improving uh, businesses' social impact, whether that be through you know uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts or their other you know other social enterprises. But now that some of that some of that steam has gone away, and you hear a lot of phrases getting back to business as usual. And, and kind of leaving this these ideas behind, uh, but workers really, really want to to know that their employer is uh, is dedicated to diversity, equity, inclusion. That they're you know they're paying attention to these to these types of things. And young consumers are really choosing their brands based on a company's values. Yeah, I, I think it started with with our generation, the millennials, and it's certainly carried on through Gen Z, but. Employees, they want to know that the companies they work for reflect their values, that they're working for a firm that has the same worldview or wants to make the same impact, that they want to create some kind of of meaning through their work, not just work for a paycheck and then find meaning outside of that. And MIVI measures a lot of things that can really go into that. It's not just DEI. I think DEI is certainly a big focus of many firms these days, but MIVI also looks at a company's hiring practices. Like, is there some kind of firewall between resumes and applications and and indicators on those applications? I think it's called blind resume reading, where you strip away indicators that could designate the, the race or the sex of an applicant. And that's found that when you do that, black candidates in particular, have a 74% chance of of getting an interview after that, whereas before it might have been a bit more difficult. It also looks at things like pay equity within firms and opportunities for employee growth, as well as the diversity of, of a firm's supply chain, benefits they offer their employees, uh, the client base they have, and, and impacts that companies have on their communities. Yeah, yeah. This is pretty all-encompassing. It's... it's uh you know these different these eight different areas. Companies are able to go through kind of a, uh, a testing process, essentially that that uh, tallies up kind of where they are. And the idea isn't just to give them a result and say, okay, this is where you are. But it's really more about movement, about about you know improving where your company is. Yeah, it's not like something like a. a, a health department certification where you're you know you get a b rank and that's your rank i mean this is about continual improvement and just like lead the criteria are going to evolve as 
kind of society evolves, as the tools evolve. So they've also they've already got kind of a, a pretty heavy hitter list of, of companies piloting this program. There's Triversity Construction, there's the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, Sanders Development Group, Turner Construction, Strauss Troy. So this is something that people seem to be taking pretty seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll be curious to see kind of where, you know, again, Mivy wants to, to take this nationally. Um, that's a big, it's a big goal. But I'm really curious to see how, how far they get, you know, in the next six months, in a year. We'd love to kind of see where their progress takes them. Absolutely. So, Tom, you're of Greek descent. I need your help. Is it pronounced Batsakis? Bat, batsakes? Batsaks? I believe it's Batsakis, but uh, I have not asked officially, so I'll say, I'll say it's Batsakis. All right. You know, a rose by any other name. Now, however you pronounce it, I'm not going to try to butcher it here. It's one of the longest-time retailers in downtown Cincinnati, 116 years. And it's, it's called Many Places Home in that time. But most recently, it was in the Terrace Plaza Hotel, and one of really the only signs of life in that building before developer Tony Berkla acquired it with intent to redevelop it into the terraces. Yeah, Andy, so I, I've been writing about that building, the Terrace Plaza, uh, since I got back to Cincinnati in 2010, um, because at the time, uh, up until about 2008, AT&T had a giant call center in the lower floors of the building, uh, and then by 2010, it was really, the whole building was closed, it wasn't operating as a hotel anymore, and then it went through a lot of different uh, ownership changes and legal battles. So uh, Gus Miller, the proprietor, the uh, owner of uh, Batsaki's, was often a source I would go and talk to. I'd walk, you know, walk <laughs> from the Courier's uh, world headquarters at 7th and Race down to the Terrace Plaza and kind of ask him, you know, what's going on? Is anyone taking care of the building? Is, you know, is your electricity on? Is, you know, what, what are you having to deal with? I mean, he's had to deal with all sorts of uh, issues as that building has, you know, had ownership changes. So he's had... A long, you know, he's been there for a long time, but a, a long time of that has not been necessarily an easy, an easy route. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's kind of one of the last vestiges of of, of really old world craftsmanship and design in an era of fast fashion where most most apparel is just bought off the rack and and, and worn to be discarded. You can actually go in, have your head measured, have a hat custom made for you that fits your head without need for straps, adjustments, or just I'm picking out a medium off the rack because I think that's what I am. I'm, I'm extra medium. And uh, it's good to see that it's not going away. Batsakis is moving to another Berkeley building, the At 580 building at 580 Walnut Streets. Now, Berkeley's got big plans for the building, and it involves you know converting really the entire thing. Well, so the Terrace Plaza architecturally from the street level it just looks like a a brick facade but it was kind of groundbreaking in its time wasn't it it was you know there's a lot of things about it that were groundbreaking the fact that it was a woman architect who was kind of leading the design um that was a huge part of it for some uh back in the day uh the it had um i want to say it was the first hotel with televisions in the rooms Hmm. you know it had gorgeous paintings uh, throughout it but a lot of the you know, and, and architecture, but a lot of the detail of the building has been uh, stripped away, and it's kind of left with this, you know, the the facade, which is representative of its of its time, but it's also a building that is a lot of red brick with no windows. Yeah, 
Yeah, so Berkeley, he's going to transform it into a mix of retail, restaurants, residential, and parking, as well as reviving the gourmet room, the once-famed restaurant that sat atop it. And he's going to maintain that design, too, though. Instead of the, the, the flat brick facade, it's going to be more of a stylized scallops look. Alright, so as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, the Bengals and their Paycor Stadium reportedly offers the best value for a family of four wanting to attend an NFL game. It'll still cost you four weeks of what I made as a cashier at Kroger to attend, though. So, Andy, do we get to talk more about uh, the difference between going to a, an NFL game and, the, and a, a Major League Baseball game? Yes, please, because I've only experienced one of those things, <laughs> and it's not been a Bengals game. Oh, no. Yeah, a new report released this week by PixWise concluded that Paycor, the Bengals' home, is the least expensive NFL stadium for family outings. So their criteria is pretty specific, but it uses the cost of four tickets, four hot dogs, two beers, two soft drinks, two souvenir hats, and parking for each of the league's 32 stadiums. And at Paycor Stadium, that added up to about $469.96. So Andy, it doesn't surprise me that that's, that that's the cost. Um, it does kind of surprise me that we're the lowest, we're the least expensive NFL stadium for a family outing in the country just because I know we would be lower as Cincinnati is a smaller market and there aren't that many markets that are smaller but it's kind of nice that that uh, that we're one of the most affordable options for if you want to take in an NFL game yeah because the numbers at some of these other stadiums are kind of eye-popping I mean it's it's more than half off I guess is one way to think about it. What a family of four would pay to see the Las Vegas Raiders at Allegiant Stadium. That that would be $732. And uh, the San Francisco 49ers, Levi's Stadium, that would be $724 for a family of four for the same thing. So, I mean, comparatively, $469 at Paycor Stadium is kind of a bargain. It is. Especially considering that the team just invested $20 million in the offseason with their... Uh, their season about to start up here and and new upgrades and amenities at Paycor Stadium. This week on the podcast, we've got Josh Walmsley, the founder and CEO of the Mizunte restaurant brand. Josh wanted to become a journalist, something we have in common, and he traveled all over the world teaching and reporting. But on a visit back to Cincinnati, he couldn't find a decent taco. So he was inspired to immerse himself in the culinary tradition of Oaxaca, Mexico, and brought all of what he learned back to the Queen City, where he's now opened three venues. This is Josh Wamsley on Bone Full. It's one of the things, as I'm sure you all know, that they never teach you in, in journalism school is how to set up a jury-rigged podcast studio in your office. <laughs> there was not a class on this. No, no class on this, especially for me. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, what, what drew you to journalism in the first place? Uh, I think it was because I was 23. No, I know it. I was 23, and I was living on the beach in Florida, and I was like, shit, I'm still a sophomore. Like, I need to graduate. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I was going to the University of South Florida, so I was like, oh, but they have a cool journalism school. I liked writing. I like storytelling. So that's kind of why I went that route. And um, when I was studying it, they, they said you could major in like long form, more of the Rolling Stone style, um, or you could do obviously like production, uh, TV, or what wire news, sort of like you know the, the in, you know inverted pyramid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, no, I think I'm gonna go with like long form, uh, and I because that's sort of like I think just I could take my time, tell the stories, and that's what I drew me. But I was mostly because 
I had to like get the degree to make my mom happy. I was like, <laughs> I gotta get this degree. She's gonna freak out. Uh, so I, I studied and I was like 25 when I finished. And I was traveling in um, Europe, finishing my last Spanish class, which is hilarious. Cause I had failed it. Cause I kept fishing in the summer. <laughs> uh, and I and uh, my my cousin kept talking to me every night. He'd be like, "I'm gonna come pick you up on the dock. We're gonna fish." I'm like, "I got the Spanish test." He's like, "Dude, you're never gonna need Spanish." <laughs> I'm like, "You're right." And I and I'm gonna need to get a good grade, and I just need to graduate. So my professor called me and he goes, "Hey man, I know you, and I know your reputation. You gotta get a C in my class." I'm like, "No, I don't. It's not a core class. I'm I'm already done with my. I got all A's in journalism." He goes, "No." We changed it. You got to get a. You got to get at least a C to graduate. And I was like, oh, dude, you're ruining my summer. I had this all planned out. Um, I didn't graduate. So then I was like, all right, I'm not going back. I'm going to go. I registered uh, at a class uh, through Central uh, Florida Community College. And in Florida, all the community college classes apply to the universities. Okay. So I registered online. I took a student loan out. I bought a ticket to Europe, and I started traveling in Europe. And um, I finished. I finished with my friends. Helped me do all my Spanish work in Europe, uh, and I submitted the last actual like uh, test in, in a, on a beach in Hawaii. <laughs> and then the irony of that is, three years later, I ended up in Mexico with no Spanish. <laughs> and so I always told my students that they're like, "Teacher, we're never going to need English." I'm like. I do have a story for you. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. You know, I find that, that comment particularly ironic that you're never going to need Spanish and now yeah. look at you. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It was, <laughs> yes. It's, and I was, uh, the other day I was at a uh, Northside Yacht Club and they needed to order something. And they're like, can, can, we need to order these bolillos. Can you please call an order in Spanish? So there, there I did it. <laughs> Comes in handy. Yeah. So what, what initially attracted you to the profession of journalism? Because I know for me, and I, I, don't, I don't know if this has any parallels with your story, it's like I didn't know, like I needed to major in something. I was, I was going to a college tour of Northwestern. You know, they're supposed to have a top five journalism program in the entire country. And here I want to do creative writing. I want to write the next great American novel. And they were going around this, this room of prospective students on this college tour saying, what do you guys want to major in? And one after another was journalism, journalism, journalism. And I didn't want to be that loser who's like, I want to be the next Stephen King. So I said journalism. And I guess I was just too stubborn or stupid to, to change. Quit. Yeah. <laughs> and so you kept with it, right? <laughs> so That's he, right. Here I am 20 years yeah. later. Oh, <laughs> uh, so many of my professors were from Northwestern. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Really good professors. Um, no, I, I really, I liked... Uh, storytelling and I liked filmmaking so when you're growing up and I was growing up in the, the 90s and Pulp Fiction was coming out it, I was like 13, 14 I started really getting into film I'd be like in my parents basement watching Platoon so film started to become uh, like a medium that I could relate to and be inspired by I wasn't uh, super interested in directing and I guess the, like the, the visual aspect which I'm very visual is surprising but I was always interested in the writing of film. Uh, so I started taking screenwriting classes in college. Um, and then as you, you take screenwriting, it just, it's sort of like, if you're, you, you both know, right? If we're going to write an article, it's about, more about brevity. How much can you say? Because you only have such a limited amount of space. It's the same thing in screenwriting. You gotta tell, you gotta write a screenplay, a screenplay in 120 pages. 
So it made sense to me that, hey, I could probably tell a pretty good story within the confines of like, uh, like 2,000 words or whatever, whatever I was given for that assignment. So, uh, you know, speaking of journalism, we're focusing on your background in journalism, your interest in the industry. But we're kind of, as we would say in the industry, bearing the lead here. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you parlayed that from from this interest in storytelling and journalism and filmmaking, and and kind of it sounds like the broader, you know, human experience to now owning three and 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 coming a fourth restaurant. Yeah. Well, and if you're if you're if you're a journalist, your job is to go to understand the story, to absorb the story, and then tell the story. That's what a journalist, that's the entire point of journalism. And if you're doing long form or wire news, it doesn't really matter, right? Um, And if you're a filmmaker, ideally, like some of the best films, that's what they're gonna do. And so it it applied to me when I went to Mexico. I just thought of it as 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 a piece. I started traveling thinking I was gonna write. When I was in Korea, I was like, oh, I guess I'll just start writing you know, about like the culture here. I just, I partied too much. I didn't write. It was so easy. We were just out every night and it was, uh, I, I don't regret anything about that. But as I was traveling in different parts of the continent, when I would go to the Philippines or if I would go to Japan, if I would go to Thailand, I did find myself like writing about people I would meet and the stories. And I met these, these two girls and their dad was a former kickboxer. And he had stopped kickboxing in Thailand because he had killed a guy. And he couldn't get over that, that inner guilt. Um, and it was, like, incredible to, like, meet all these people. And so I started and then talking about their suffering and what they'd been through. So when I came back and I was getting ready to go to, I was choosing between Taiwan, Saudi Arabia, or Vietnam. And Vietnam was my dream. But then I ate that shitty taco. And I was, and there was, I mean, back then, you guys, there were no taco trucks. It wasn't like, it was 2010, I mean, it was like the height of burritos and stuff, so I was like, damn, we need like a really good taco shop. So I didn't really ever want to like grow up, I just thought I would travel forever. I never anticipated like owning my own business, truly. So I was like, but if I'm going to do it, I need to do it, obviously on my terms, through like a sense of like uh, myself and obviously in terms of journalism. I'm going to go to Mexico. I'm going to research the story. I'm going to basically come back and tell the story, but my dad's got to build the restaurant first. <laughs> uh, so it's the same. It's, it all applies. I mean, everything that we're all, like, interested in and that we all, like, even you said you wanted to be a writer, it's about you're trying to tell a story, and that's the most important part. I think people get that wrong sometimes. I've gotten it wrong before. Like, like you, you, you want to tell a story, and you can't convey what you really want to do, even with a dish sometimes with a conversation. Uh, but the, the, the point is, hopefully, you can tell the story that you really, really are yearning to tell, and people can absorb it. So what was it about that experience? I mean, you kind of immersed yourself in Mexico before coming back to start Mazunte. What did you learn there, and what led, what informed that creation of Mazunte from that? Well, yeah, so Mazunte was, the, the concept was created as I was going, I couldn't sleep. So I w- it was like, you could just see it's like, you know, and sometimes my friend Adam one time asked me, he goes, how do you see numbers? And I was like, oh yeah, I see them. Like an eight, I can see it. So I was like waking up watching this thing unfold, like boom, like, okay, taco shop. And I just could see every layer of it. So I was already, the moment I arrived in Mexico City, I was, I was writing graffiti. And I was writing what I was seeing, everything 
we're just, again, we're so trained to, to jot down all the details so that you don't miss anything and you can represent everyone. Um, and I was like, okay, I got to represent Mexico. Yeah, this is a personal journey, but it's about all the people who, are, who I'm going to meet along the way. Um, and every time you take a journey or you travel, you, 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 know, you, don't, you always underestimate the beauty of the people. Even when I opened Mazunte, I was like, I, I'm not, you don't anticipate that you're going to fall in love with everyone there, right? That they're going to become your family. And that happened. And it always happens for me when I travel. When I, when I moved to Europe, when I moved to Korea, uh, when I lived in Florida, obviously when, when I lived in Mexico, I built these families, these communities. But then I left those. I was never consistent. Mazunte's 10 years, dude. It's so consistent. I haven't, I haven't done anything for that time period for a long time. But when I was in um, Mexico, obviously, I was in Oaxaca, and I told my students from day one, I said, I want to be real with you. I'm not really like a teacher. I know we're at a university, and I will teach you English, I promise. Um, but I just want to be real with you. I came here to learn how to cook Oaxacan food. I just have to teach English to get by. I don't want to lie to you guys. So, you know, and they're like, okay, thank you. And there were a lot of people there who were just there to travel and they were teaching, but I wanted to be really upfront with them. And, uh, and they were amazing. They were like, well, cool. Well, we'll have you go cook with my mom tomorrow. Or my friend, you know, knows somebody. And, they, and then I would, I would cook for them in, in class. And uh, we, would, we would, like on like Christmas parties or whatever, I would like bring snacks and it was awesome. And they, they, would, they would teach me and they taught me a lot. They said, the one thing we want you to know is that here in Oaxaca, uh, Oaxaca at that point was the second uh, poor state in Mexico. They said, we grew up in, so every piece of food mattered. So when you cook at your restaurants, make sure that if you, if you boil a chicken, you use the broth again for something else. Never discard anything until it's like absolutely necessary. Be really uh, gracious with the ingredients you have and make the best use of them. And I always like remember that. And I remember that classroom where it was. And the university was beautiful. It was, uh, it was in this town called Miawatlan, which is two hours south of Oaxaca City. Not a beautiful town. Really dangerous town. We we're the only foreigners there. Um, uh, no, no problem with us, right? We just mind our own business. But, but you kind of like, that's where all like, you know, everything's kind of coming through, all the drugs. So you, you sort of like, you understand, you navigate. It's not like a, a place you're walking around at like 10 o'clock at night. But the university was up on this beautiful, like, like in this mountain range on this hill. So, I mean, imagining like the incredible mountains and flowers. And at that point, Oaxaca was pretty like undiscovered. I mean, it had been discovered in the late 60s for the psychedelic reasons, for the mushrooms, and, and which is awesome. That is something I would recommend people take that journey <laughs> both ways. Um, uh, but it had been kind of like in the 80s, the 90s, you know, foreigners were staying away. So you wouldn't see, often you wouldn't see any other foreigners. Um, every once in a while you see like a Canadian, but we were, it, was, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for people to come up and take a photo with you because they had never seen a white guy before. Hmm. So I'm wondering how that experience kind of manifests itself in your restaurants because each one is unique. I mean, but here, sitting here downtown, we're close to Centro, which uh, I remember you walking me through that while it's under construction, yeah. just seeing a lot of the, you talked about graffiti, a lot of the, the really thoughtful and purposeful graffiti that you have on the walls there and that kind of the walk up to the counter and the entrance. But then in the original Mazunte in Madisonville, it's super close to me in Norwood. My wife and I go all the time and it's it's very much an experience from the way you order to 
having the uh, guacamole and the salsa bar, and then even the the horchata and the the uh, margaritas right there. You, it's not like table service where they'll bring you a margarita with you know, frozen margarita with uh, salt on the rim. You walk up and they'll fill your cup for you. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted. That's how I. Well, a few things with the restaurant business is I grew up, I was working in uh, at Kenwood Country Club. That was my first job. Hmm. Not great. I was, uh, I was, I was like a busser, uh, but I was better at expo in the kitchen. I liked the kitchen better. Um, I thought the chefs were, it was like fun, you know, for me to be back there. Um, and I, but I was mediocre. I was a kid and I wasn't like really reliable, but I, I had, I tried to be, and when, if you're a busser at Kenwood Country Club, in the late 90s you had to put the water down and you always had to put it on the right you know you had to set up and you'd fold the napkins and so I put water on the left one time and this woman grabbed the water and she goes it goes on the right and I was in my head I was like well, you know what one day I'm gonna open my own restaurant and you get your own goddamn water <laughs> so when I opened the Zunta, I'm like this is my opportunity we're gonna give you a cup and you get your own water I'm not a service guy I wouldn't be um, uh, my attention to detail in terms of that's like not my greatest asset. My business partner, John's got a great attention to detail, former accountant, you know, he's just perfect. Right. Um, that's not me. And I knew I couldn't train that way. And, and also I don't think I wanted to, um, I'll leave that kind of like fine dining. I, I always tell Jose this, I'll leave it up to you, buddy. You can do that at Mitas. at Mizunte. We'll just give you <laughs> the cup. And, I also, obviously, it was reflective of what I had experienced in Mexico. Because if you're, you're eating at the markets or you're just going to your neighbors, you know, they were just sometimes in Mexico, they just opened the garage. Okay, we're open today. Hmm. We have tlayudas, we have tostadas. You go there the next day, they're like, no, I mean, we're just not going to serve. It was, it's that simple there. And so I was like, okay, we're going to make this, like, you're going to walk up, you're going to get your food, you're going to sit down. And I had been to Earth Cafe in Santa Monica to meet my friend. Jen. So we all taught together in South Korea. My dad and I in 2009 were doing this long road trip. So we went, so we left from, I came back in between uh, my time in Korea and he said, okay, when are you going back to like travel? I go in January. This is October. He's like, let's take a road trip. I'm like, cool. Uh, so we went from Cincinnati. Uh, we drove out, you know, we went through the Grand Canyon, Vegas, got to LA. We saw my friend Jen. We ate at Earth Cafe. They filmed some entourage scenes there too, so I had like been like, aware of that. Uh, then we came, we came, we went up the coast. Saw my sisters in San Francisco, Seattle, chilled in Vancouver. Came back down through Yellowstone. You know, it was this amazing trip. But when I was there, I was also like sort of like mentally preparing for what you know in the future. Like, where do I want to travel? Do is there a possibility I even want to go get my master's? You know, because I was 26, 27. So I just, I was always thinking about like, okay, cool. It's all about traveling, nothing, not, not a job. <laughs> um, yeah. So where does the travel bug come from for I, you? I think, it's, I think it's the desire to understand the experience, obviously on a human level. And I, don't, I wasn't a traveler in, in, until I majored in journalism. I really wasn't. I, I liked, I was kind of um, like a homebody um, when I was in college and I didn't do a lot. My friends would come down. Um, I didn't even party. I would always just take them out, uh, and so I would drive them around, and they, they were and I was always there, but something happened 
when I was like studying journalism, meeting people, putting myself in these situations, and I covered religion for my beat. No one wanted to cover that, mm. but I thought it was fascinating from like a sociological standpoint and like how movements work. And I got to know all these different. I like the Baha'i faith. I had never heard of that, but I got to like meet them and understand what they were about. And I and as I was like writing journalism, I interviewed this guy. His name's Joe Redner. He owns a. Uh, the most famous strip club probably in the country called Mons Venus in Tampa. Uh, for all the listeners, I'm sure you don't have to tell your you know significant others that you've been there. But uh, he had he was running for city council, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna that's gonna be the article I write. Hmm. And so I wrote the article about you know him running for city council, and I profiled. Him. I spent like two weeks with him, uh, and then I, I wrote different stories. But I got to know people of obviously certainly different ideologies and different perspectives. So if you're traveling, that's inherent. You go somewhere, you put yourself out there, and it's it becomes addicting. I like people who think different and look different and speak different than I do. Yeah. And I love that. It's I think it's also maybe because I'm a Virgo, I have this insatiable like desire to con- continually learn. Um, and like my mom's always surprised. She was like, you were such a shitty student. I go, yeah, but I didn't like... It was boring. I didn't care, you know. And I, I, but once I once I realized that my best work, right? I graduated for my mom. If you were giving me your time as a journalist, I would make sure I wrote the best story for you. I was much better at doing things for other people than I was just for myself, you know. In that in that sense, and I can be selfish in other ways. Certainly, my sisters will tell you that. <laughs> but if, if in, in this case, like today. I want to make sure I'm good for you guys because you're giving me your time. I appreciate that. How, <laughs> how do you scratch the travel itch today? Is that is that something you still? Yeah, do? I travel a lot. Yeah, yeah. We and I when I so uh, my wife Megan, when I when we were first really really falling in love, I, I took her to Oaxaca for I took her to Oaxaca and then down to my friend's wedding in Mazute, which is really cool. So so I'm like I'm gonna fly you into Oaxaca and she never even researched it, which is awesome. We got there at night. She had no idea what she was walking into, 2018. We get there at night. It's dark. Everything's kind of closed up. I said, I'm going to take you to my favorite Tlaibita place, a stand on the street. So we're walking by. You know, there's you know, armed guys with guns. And I'm like, don't worry. They're just, you know, military. She's like, what the hell? She can't see anything. There's, you know, she, she, she can't speak any um, Spanish really yet. She's kind of learning. She's nervous. We eat Slayudas. We go. We we go back to. And you got to knock on like this big door. They open up. They let you in this hotel, and we sleep. And she wakes up in the morning, and it opens to the street of like you know by Santo Domingo in Oaxaca, which is insane. She was like, "Oh my god!" And to watch her that whole like trip, she was just like blown away, and to like sort of like understanding who, like understanding different parts about the world and of herself. And we we drove down. We went to the mountains. Did the whole drive down to the beach which takes about six hours from Oaxaca, uh, but it's like 35 miles an hour, so she got to experience that, then she got to Mazunte. And she was like, this is a real place? I'm like, yeah. Um, but so I told her on that trip, we were in Mexico City at the end of that trip, in uh, Roma, uh, we were drinking rosé and just eating a salad to finish the trip off because we had had so many tacos. And I said, I just want you to know, if, if you're gonna be with me, we're gonna travel a lot. Um, and our kids are gonna travel, and it's gonna be a part of our lives. Uh, and it's not going to be a traditional uh, lifestyle, maybe like that you had thought. And I, I will concede on a lot, but I won't concede on travel. And she was like, okay. And we have been traveling. So we got married. We got married in Mazunte in Oaxaca. Megan and I have been to, I've, we've been to, we've been to see my friends back in South Korea, 
because like I have another life in South Korea. We go back there. I still have so many friends who own like like bars and restaurants and cafes, and I see them. And Megan has been with me to Japan, and we've been all over Europe. We just did a huge three week trip here. We've been uh, doing more domestic this summer. I wanted to do like like the coast of Oregon. I wanted to go old school. Hmm. Uh, we ended up in Canada. See my friends up in Canada, but when you travel, you meet so many people from all over. So we have friends in Spain, we have friends in Korea, Mexico, Canada, uh, Dubai, everywhere. And so it's just part of it now. It's like, if you love these people and you want to see them, sometimes you have to go to them. And I told Mizunte, everyone who works at Mizunte and works with Mizunte, that I am a traveler. I will always travel. And um, fortunately, now it's a little bit easier to do our work from anywhere. Hmm. So in Spain, I was just working, I would work uh, from like four to 10. You know, I would do all my meetings and then in the, in the evening. So we would be in the cafes in the daytime, have lunch. The night, I didn't have a lot of time. I would just do my typical day there. All right, well, Josh, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, yes. Above the Folds is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demeropoulos. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another episode of Above the Fold.